Russia has an ambitious naval strategy. Vladimir Putin says the US is the biggest threat to his global maritime goals. He's promised to equip warships with unprecedented weapons. What does this new naval strategy mean? And how will it be viewed in Washington? I'm Kim Vidal, and you're listening to the Inside Story podcast, where we dissect, analyze, and help define major global stories. Let's bring in our guests. In Moscow is Sergei Markov, director of the Institute of Political Studies. He's also a former spokesman for President Vladimir Putin. In Vienna is Wolfgang Pustai, a security defense analyst and former Austrian defense attaché. And in New York is Lawrence Brennan, a retired U.S. Navy captain and adjunct professor of law at Fordham University. A very warm welcome to you all. I uh, thank you for joining us. I'd like to begin uh, with you, Mr. Markov, if I may. Um, seeing as you were a, a former spokesman for President Putin and, and may have some uh, insight into the thinking in his, in his circle, I just want to get your take on this new naval doctrine, what it means and, I guess more importantly, what it signifies. Uh, first of all, I think uh, it will be a few uh, strategic uh, documents of uh, Russian government which uh, has to be uh, changed because now we live in the new reality. We live in the reality where uh, the policy of the United States of America and another native country became very aggressive. United States overthrown democratically elected president of Ukraine, imposed a repressive undemocratic regime to Ukrainian people, and uh, uh, support aggressiveness against uh, people in Donbass who are against illegal uh, coup which happened in uh, Kiev. Uh, also, we can see hybrid war, uh, which orchestrated and led by United States of America and uh, to which another members of NATO, including European Union countries, uh, join. So Russia needs, uh, in this new reality, to change uh, the, uh, the bunch of its uh, uh, strategic documents. Uh, naval strategy is uh, uh, one of them. It's, uh, that's why it's absolutely correctly clear uh, you describe that uh, United States uh, is regarded as a major threat to Russian security interests, and United States attempt to block Russia is specifically regarded as a, as a biggest threat uh, from the uh, naval, I would say, ocean and sea uh, uh, point of view. Okay. And, I want to pause uh, you there. Well, I want to pause you there and just pick up on something you said, describing this as a new reality, and pass it over to Wolfgang Pustai. Um, obviously, in terms of the reasoning for the war in Ukraine, the position of Ukraine in the West is is somewhat different. But I just want to get your take on this new naval doctrine. Is this uh, does this signify a new reality? Well, I would say it's the new naval doctrine is also somehow a reaction to NATO enlargement. NATO enlargement in the north with regard to Finland and Sweden. This weakens the geostrategic position of Russia in the north significantly. Especially as in the case of a major war between Russia and NATO, NATO would have the capability to threaten the naval bases of the northern fleet near Murmansk and at the, at the Kola Peninsula. With regard to the development from the previous 2015 doctrine, I would say it's no surprise. It's more or less a logical development. Okay. Um, Mr. Lawrence Brennan, you're a, you're a Navy man. What's your uh, sort of reaction to this naval doctrine? And what do you make of the timing? Obviously, 
you know, Russia is at war with Ukraine. But is there any importance around the timing of this? There, there could be terrible importance about the timing of this. This undoes centuries of traditional maritime law, law of the high seas, and undoes more than half a century of very good naval relations between the former Soviet Navy and the, now the Russian Navy and the U.S. Navy. Uh, in the dark days of the early 1970s, uh, the Soviet Navy and the U.S. Navy came to an agreement called the Incident at Sea Agreement, Inc. Sea Agreement, to prevent the risk of unintentional or possibly accidental harm between their ships. It was during the time of great hostilities in the Eastern Mediterranean among the Arab nations and Israel. And we've had good relations, annual meetings, and resolution at, at lower levels of possible conflicts. Mm. Uh, we, we have agreements that supplement the law of the sea. We have agreements that supp supplement the rule of the road, rules of the road. And we have fairly good relationships. Uh, when I was on the aircraft carrier Nimitz that launched the raid uh, to Iran to try to rescue the American hostages, we always had a Russian or then a Soviet surface ship shadow. Uh, we, we had some interesting uh, communications uh, at that time and got in trouble with President Carter for sending hockey scores during the 1980 Olympics, but they were professionally done. There were no real risks of collision, no real risks of weapons being fired accidentally or intentionally. This is a question then for Sergei Markov uh, over in Moscow. Uh, there's been a lot of discussion about this being a uh, reaction to the expansion of NATO. Is that the reason for this naval doctrine? How threatened does Russia feel right now uh, about NATO? Uh, Russia uh, not so much concerned about NATO, uh, especially about uh, Finland and uh, Sweden joining NATO. Uh, we know that uh, uh, because of the treaties which exist between NATO and European Union and the membership of Sweden and Finland in European Union, in fact, we regarded that Finland and Sweden already have been part of the NATO unofficially. We know that Defense Minister of Finland and Sweden uh, took part in all uh, meetings of NATO defense ministers and uh, also on the grass uh, root level also it, it was uh, of um, inter, uh, interconnection between NATO and Finland and Sweden. So this situation didn't change dramatically. Also, uh, was uh, the reason why we, we have been uh, so much uh, against uh, membership of uh, Ukraine uh, uh, in NATO is because NATO is used as a weapon uh, for the uh, transformation of Ukraine to the anti-Russian and to creating by uh, clear threat to Russia and to, to, formate, uh, to form the relation between Russia and uh, Ukraine as the relation between India and Pakistan. It's what we does not like, for sure, because it's a big uh, strategic threat to the Russian security. As talking to the North, now more Russia interesting, and this is uh, reflected in this naval um, uh, strategy, Russia more interesting uh, uh, about security uh, of the uh, North uh, 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 traffic, uh, uh, Arctic way, so-called, uh, it's uh, regarded as uh, important uh, uh, for economy and for the uh, security issue also. And we want uh, to defend uh, this Arctic way from the, any, uh, any aggressive behavior from the, uh, those countries which uh, uh, does not like 
uh, such way to be used for Russian mm -hmm. economy. Mm -hmm. This it will be priority, okay. Arctic, uh, polar uh, 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 trade way. Okay, Wolfgang Poste, I can see you want to jump in there. Um, before I get your response, I also want to ask you, um, the main threat to Russia, according to the doctrine, is the strategic policy of the USA to dominate the world's oceans. Is that true? Is there a shift from the US wanting to dominate the world's waters? Well, uh, first, with regards to NATO access of Sweden and Finland, there is a big difference for Russia because for the time being, both were just members of NATO Partnership for Peace. And now, after they are real full member of NATO, there is a mutual defense clause, which makes the difference. There is an integration of both countries into NATO command structure. And the new naval doctrine of Russia counters also the perceived threat by these two additional NATO countries by a counter threat in the Arctic. And with referring to your question, uh, for the United States, uh, the freedom of shipping, the freedom of global shipping lines is a vital strategic interest. It's a vital strategic interest. In order to ensure this, the U.S. Navy needs to maintain a presence all over the world, at least with regard to the global shipping routes. The Russian new doctrine is a clear mismatch, a mismatch of strategic objectives and available means. The Russian Navy has about 210 vessels. Out of these 210 vessels, about 55 are fully functional blue water ocean-going vessels and submarines. About half of them can be considered modern ships. This means it's unlikely that the Russians will be able to threaten American sea control. They are following somehow the so-called French Schoenecourt naval concept of the 19th century, which means their aim is not so much to dominate the sea, but to challenge the U.S. sea control. All right. Uh, I'd like to come back to you, Sergei Markov. Do you agree with that assessment of uh, Russia's sort of uh, strategy in terms of its naval power? And sort of how do you think all of this is likely to be viewed by the other side, is likely to be viewed by the U.S.? Uh, we know that there are very, very big difference about what Americans thinking and what uh, Americans uh, uh, are talking and uh, what Americans doing. Uh, you know, and uh, we know uh, that uh, they are talking everything about uh, aggressively of uh, Russia, but in fact, uh, uh, they know for sure that Russia is not an aggressive country, but uh, they attack Russia uh, exactly because they believe that Russia is too weak. If Russia will be not, will be not weak um, because of them, they will not uh, attack. So, uh, and uh, uh, it's uh, one important point. Another point, point about uh, uh, we understand, you know, we should uh, divide uh, two important uh, military uh, things. One is global nuclear uh, potential, which is uh, used by Russia, uh, uh, first of all, by uh, strategic submarines for uh, some kind of uh, taking part in the uh, big uh, nuclear catastrophic war. Uh, this worked more or less uh, efficiently and well. Uh, but uh, this situation in a war on the Ukrainian territory, which we believe Russia has not against Ukraine, but against proxy American army, which uh, uh, used uh, uh, Ameri uh, Ukrainian flag. And uh, uh, this show that Russian military navy for the uh, conventional uh, uh, wars appear to be not so strong, not so strong enough. That's why 
Russia, uh, Vladimir Putin announced uh, ambitious uh, plan uh, to build a new uh, military uh, naval ships for the conventional uh, wars, which uh, we expected, uh, to our regret, we will have to take part in the future. Okay. Wolfgang uh, Pustai, I'd like to come back to you. Um, depending on which analysts you talk to, at the start of the war, it was discussed that um, Russia had failed in its initial aims, that it wanted to go in, take over Ukraine or take over large parts of Ukraine and it be done, and that instead it's turned into a war of attrition and that, in fact, it, it wanted to, to take over, to take control of the Black Sea. Was that ever an aim? Was Would Russia ever have been able to do that? And if this is now a war of attrition, how well is Russia placed to, to continue that? I would say at the beginning, the Russian strategy was based on entirely wrong assumptions. They did not believe that the Ukrainian armed forces would put up a stiff resistance. Actually, their assumption was that the vast majority of the Russian uh, living in Ukraine would join the Russian army in their advance. They did not believe that the West, including the United States, would impose serious sanctions on Russia. And if you have a look on the military concept, these quick attacks, the so-called Operation Maneuver Groups trying to reach Kiev, are a typical example for these wrong assumptions. They believed that they could get to Kiev and the war would be over they would have preferred to install a Russia-friendly government in Kiev. This has obviously failed, and they have now changed their uh, approach, their strategy. This means it's about, as I've said, a war of attrition in the Donbas. They want to succeed in occupying the whole of the Donbas, and if possible, this means if they're able to eliminate the vast majority of the Ukrainian forces, they would aim also to attack Odessa and advance to Odessa to occupy the whole Black Sea coast. If this is possible, we will see in the next weeks or months if the Ukrainians are able to uphold their resistance. This will certainly depend also on the amount of weapon deliveries from the West. Mm -hmm. Lawrence Brennan, um, we've talked a lot about the strategy and the naval strategy, but I want to get a little bit specific about some of the uh, announcements around this naval doctrine. So there are going to be hypersonic missiles uh, on some ships. Can you just explain uh, to us and to our audience at home what they are, what sort of challenges they present for potential combatants? Sure. In simplistic terms, the Zircon missiles, which are on small Russian naval combatants, have a range of approximately 1,000 kilometers and have a speed of about 500 nautical miles, uh, which is also about 500 nautical miles. They have a speed of nine times the speed of sound, which is uh, nearly 7,000 miles per hour. Wow. Uh, they're impossible to destroy safely in flight. Now, that doesn't mean they're accurate. That doesn't mean that they will uh, lock on. But it means that those who are defending against those targets have to go back to early flight errors, particularly towards the end of World War II and the Japanese kamikaze attacks, manned suicide planes. And the aircraft, and, and here the Zircon missiles, have to be destroyed before they're launched. That means that the target is the ship carrying them. Right now, the publicity is that the ships that will carry them are relatively small Soviet Russian naval corvettes or destroyer-type ships. Their ability to defend their in, in integration in larger groups are not known. That's one thing that will have to be planned. I am sure 
that the U.S. Naval War College, the technical people in the Navy are looking, studying this, and coming up with counterproposals, how to respond to it before it happens. We also have to work in a world where we hope that no one begins an un unprepared, uh, unannounced first strike. Uh, that's not the policy of the United States government uh, and hopefully is not the policy of the Russian government or any other civilized government mm. in the world. Just before we move on from you, uh, Mr. Brennan, the uh, much-anticipated grain deal has finally gotten underway today, um, allowing ships from Ukrainian ports to go through down the Black Sea um, and into the Bosphorus in Istanbul to get much-needed grain to avoid a, a basically a, a worldwide food crisis. I mean, how uh, tenuous is that? How dangerous is that? Is there the potential for this to go wrong? Well, there's always potential for hazards of the sea, um, and most of those are relatively benign things. That's why the insurers at Lloyd's and in Tokyo and in Europe uh, insure maritime risk. That happens. Uh, there are certain excluded risks, war risks that are under special insurance in London, particularly, not exclusively, and, and those are things we're looking at. But this grain, uh, from what I read earlier today, is bound uh, for Lebanon, where there's desperate need. Uh, if, if the Russians have agreed to allow grain to leave and the Turkish government, which controls the Bosphorus and the exit and entrance into the Black Sea, Turkey a member of NATO, if Turkey permits that and, and supports it, and there's no opposition and no hostility, things will work okay. Mm. Uh, there's still, and there's still uncertainty as to what really is going to happen, and if there's a blockade of Ukraine grain and economic warfare in that form. As as you say, there does seem to be a consensus among around among all parties about the importance of this working. Um, Sergei Markov, I'd like to come back to something you said, talking about the, the Arctic Ocean. The importance of the Arctic Ocean is actually set out in this doctrine. Why is it so important for Russia, the Arctic Ocean? What's happening there? Uh, Arctic uh, uh, Ocean are becoming more and more important for uh, Russia because a uh, few uh, reasons. First of all, because of global warming, uh, now we see uh, more opportunities for the uh, trade through Arctic Ocean uh, uh, following uh, the uh, Russian uh, uh, shore coast. Uh, and uh, it's one. It uh, can create a very good uh, uh, way uh, which can replace uh, another uh, trade uh, uh, ways, uh, including Suez uh, uh, Channel. Uh, and uh, it's uh, twice, uh, almost twice less uh, by kilometers uh, than uh, Suez uh, uh, Channel. It could be very profitable for uh, Russian economy and for the global economy as well. Okay. It's one. And secondly, is uh, is uh, developing of the technologies of taking uh, gas and oil uh, from the uh, uh, sea. Uh, uh, in the Arctic Ocean. Uh, technologically, it's not so easy uh, to do because uh, the ice is uh, uh, moving. Uh, but uh, now uh, the new technologies uh, probably will allow uh, to do it. 
and uh, a lot of specialists, uh, geologists, uh, regard that uh, Arctic Ocean has a tremendous uh, uh, supplies of the gas and oil. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you may know, now the developing uh, global economy need more and more energy. Uh, that's why those who uh, will be able to take uh, uh, gas and oil from the Arctic Ocean uh, will have great uh, benefit. Okay, so, so it's, it's resource uh, rich way, is what you're saying. Okay. Uh, Wolfgang, first, I'd like to cross over to you. You want to say something or comment on, on that? Yep, I just would like to add that the Arctic is also of significance because it's the petrol and launch area for Russian ballistic missile submarines. Right. Well, that's, One more reason yeah. to have control over this. Um, Wolfgang, I'd also like to ask you, um, we've been talking there about you know having ports that are warm water or ports that can be accessed. How has Russia tried to secure allies or partners in the region to get port access? I mean, Syria has been a key ally through, through the war in Syria. What about, you know, Egypt or Cyprus or Greece or Libya? Well, one must not forget the position of Russia in, the, in Africa is not that bad as it is frequently perceived in the West. There are many African countries with a warm and close relationship to Moscow and especially from president to president Putin. So this must be always kept, kept in mind. And I would say there are several options for the Russians to find naval bases in Africa, especially on the African East Coast. Mm. So with regard to Libya, for the time being, uh, although there are Russian mercenaries currently present in Libya, I think it is highly unlikely, highly unlikely that there could be any Libyan ruler who would allow the Russians to establish a naval base in, let's say, Tobruk. Why? Because the relationship with the West, with Europe, is much more important for Libya than the relationship with Moscow. Sure. Uh, Lawrence Brennan, we've got about a minute left. I can see you wanted to add something there. Please take the floor. Sure. Uh, for more than 100 years, uh, Russian and friendly naval forces have worked together in the far north. At the end of World War I, 1917, 1918, uh, British and U.S. naval forces were at Murmansk and Archangel. And uh, towards the end of the war in later years, uh, U.S. and other naval forces were in Vladivostok. For many reasons, through, through World War II, a lot of goods were transported from the United States to Russia via Vladivostok. And in 1918, 1919, uh, the Western allies were concerned that Japan would try to seize uh, Vladivostok and the uh, warm water ports in northern Russia. So uh, this is a long-term problem uh, with some good historical precedent well worth discussing mm. at a conference. All right, we'll have to leave it there. Uh, as you say, we could have an entire conference just on that uh, for time, though. Thank you very much to all of our guests, Sergei Markov, uh, Wolfgang Kostai, and Lawrence Brennan. That's it for the Inside Story podcast. This episode was produced by Mohamed Dalaishi, Gillian Wolf, Fungi Nguyen, and Gemma Harris. Studio sound was by Phil Morrison. The program was edited by Vishnu Shella, Lynn Nguyen, and Joe DeFrias. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back again on Tuesday.